too. All right. Uh, welcome back to the third and final podcast from yours truly of um, uh, the nature of nature writing in New England. Uh, this has been an interesting experience, to say the least. Um, and while I've enjoyed myself, I can't say I'm not a little relieved to know I won't have to do another of these anytime soon. Uh, I said it before, but public speaking is really not my area of expertise. And again, this isn't strictly that, but it feels close enough, but it makes me all kinds of nervous. Uh, but anyway, that's not what I'm here to talk about. Uh, instead, I'm making good of my vague promise I made in the last episode to really get into Rachel Carson, as well as maybe another offer I found. If there's time, uh, if there isn't, well, her name is Annie Dillard. Uh, and I only got to look at a few of her poems, but I enjoyed them. And one in particular seemed like it would be sort of relevant to Rachel Carson discussion. So hopefully I can sneak it in somewhere. But if not, uh, feel free to look her up. Um, again, I only looked at a few of her poems. And I don't, she's not a nature writer, from what I understand. I think the one poem I found was sort of, it just happened, that's happened to be what it was about. But I don't think that is her general. Uh, a genre of writing that she does um okay so now i know we covered a lot of carson in class and that talking about her more and after the 15-ish minutes i already gushed about her for that padlet activity uh might seem redundant <clears throat> but i actually don't want to talk about silent spring here <clears throat> at least not directly because uh excuse me <clears throat> Uh, unfortunately, I think it's hard to get into anything about Carson without referencing Silent Spring even once. Um, it's her magnum opus, I think, even though I'm not, I'm not sure what she would have wanted. I don't think she would have wanted it to be that, uh, that thing that she is ultimately remembered for above all others. Um, I mean, she didn't want to write Silent Spring in the first place, like knowing the controversy it would spark and she was... So she had so many other things in her life that like demanded her attention because she was taking care of, or she had been taking care of like her like the her cousin, or her I'm sorry her nephew, uh, her ailing mother. Um, she had family she was taking care of. She was sick for so much of this, um, but then knowing like she couldn't get other people to write it because. Um, I, I can't recall the man she asked to do it, but he's, he replied with something along the lines of he wasn't, he wouldn't be able to do it justice. Uh, he wouldn't be able to do the topic justice because it wasn't something he knew anything about, whereas he knew Carson was by trade a, a biologist, a marine biologist, at least. Um, but she's a scientist, by, she was a scientist by trade, um, as much as she was a writer. Uh, and so she did, she did write Silence Ring because she felt someone had to, because this was something she saw as vitally important for people to know and understand better. And she, I guess, I guess it came down to like, if, if someone had to write it and if it had to be her, then she'd do it. No matter the consequences. That's how it comes across anyway, from the various sources I've gone through over the years. And then especially actually while I was reading uh, this New Yorker article, New Yorker article that Professor Baker sent me, um, the right way to remember Rachel Carson. And I, uh, I will fully admit when I read that article, I got choked up a little bit because I didn't know the full extent of what Carson was going through um, while she was writing Silent Spring prior to that. And then after it had already been finished and she was living out the last few years of her life. 
it's it's a really good read. Um, I would suggest anybody who has an interest in it, an interest in her, or uh, yeah, I suppose an interest in her would would should go for it. Go read it. It's it's fantastic. Um, it's very eye opening. Uh, it is just. It was just really unfortunate when you read it because Silent Spring really is the thing she's she's best known for. And in fact, I wager if anybody had heard of her prior to this class or prior to like having her brought up in a class, it was because of Silent Spring. Uh, and I'm I'm guilty of the same thing. I mean, I didn't know she wrote other books until years after I had first heard of her. Um, and frankly, they hadn't really caught my attention because. Silent Spring is that thing that gets so much attention. It, it gets so much um, airtime. Isn't quite the right word, but it, like airtime, it, it's talked about so much. It's it, like when you reference Rachel Carson, you are almost exclusively referencing Silent Spring, and that's important. Obviously, it's an important book. Uh, it did so much. It got so much. It helped to get so much accomplished. Um, and again, we I talked about you know. Well, in my Padlet activity, I think that like she taught, she helped push the environment, the modern environmental movement. Um, but it's also true that she was a driving force behind um, ocean conservation and like where we are now with that, because she uh, her other she has three books, I think, and then one more post that was published posthumously, um, and they're all about her great love of the sea and and they're all scientific they're all educational but she's such a fantastic writer that even if you're not like me and you find all this stuff interesting anyway and and even to be honest like i sometimes when you get into like the nitty-gritty of scientific things i sort of lose interest but like it's so beautifully written and um i think someone had described it as like a, a lyrical kind of prose and it, it really really is um I haven't read all these books, obviously. I don't have the time for it right now. But I did find um I did find something and I will get into that in a second. I just wanted to share there's one um passage from The Right Way to Remember Remember <laughs> Sorry, uh The Right Way to Remember Rachel Carson. A lot of R's in there. Um because I just thought it was it's very poignant and I think it sort of sums up the feel of the article and the absolute tragedy that really is Rachel Carson at the end. Um, it's it's this. Uh, Rachel Carson did not see the ocean again, uh, nor would she be remembered for what she wrote about the sea from its shore to its depths. Uh, the old dear, the dear old sea around us has been displaced. Freeman wrote with sorrow, and Freeman was her longtime. Um, I believe I believe they were lovers. They were in love. I think Freeman was married with a child. But uh, from what I understand of reading that, they were very much, her and Carson were very much in love. Um, but Freeman wrote uh, this, and when people talk about you, they'll say, oh yes, the author of Silent Spring, for I suppose there are people who have never heard of the sea around us. And, and that struck me as just so, so true, and then so sad, because it, it's just a shame that, that Carson, literally only ever was remembered for this one thing um despite how gifted a writer she was and everything she did um 
but uh, to, to make that point um, even more clearly, I suppose, I found um, the article she originally wrote um, that was supposed to be, I think, an introduction to a brochure for what would become the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services. That was the Bureau of Fisheries, uh, I think, when she was still working there. Um, it's called it's called Undersea, and it it is what would then become um, her first book. Um, uh, what would be her first book? Well, okay. Unfortunately, it doesn't really matter in the moment. That's I I'll find it eventually. But um, there are a few things I would really love to share from this one, and I realize this is taking up some time, but I just think a couple of these passages are very, very important, I think, to get across, if only because I really want to emphasize how how great of a writer she was and and how she like so easily like married this idea of of being both scientifically accurate but also engaging and, and it makes you want to like it makes you want to love what she's writing about as much as she clearly loves it herself. Um, uh, so the first passage I have, uh, uh, to sense this world of waters known to the creatures of the sea, we must shed our human perceptions of length and breadth and time and place and enter vicariously into a universe of all pervading water. Uh, and the second one, um, and indeed it is nothing more or less than seawater in all its varying conditions of temperature, saltiness, and pressure that forms the invisible barriers that confine each marine type within a specific zone of life. One to the shoreline, another to some submarine chasm on the far slopes of the continental shelf, and yet another perhaps to an imperceptibly defined stratum at mid-depths of ocean. And the last one I have is, and it is because of the flowering of astronomical numbers of these diminutive plants known as diatoms, that the surface of waters of the oceans are in reality boundless pastures. Every marine animal from the smallest to the sharks and whales is ultimately dependent for its food upon these microscopic entities of the vegetable life of the ocean. And I mean, that this is me just trying to get the point across that like she, like obviously all of this to the time that she was writing is completely scientifically accurate. Um, I mean, I know this stuff now from my classes I've taken and, and just other things I've been doing. Um, and she's like, she's not using super, uh, super abstract scientific words that you've never heard of and can't understand. Um, and if she does use something, she explains what it is very clearly, but also very smoothly within the sentence. Um, and I, I just, I really loved this. I loved getting a glimpse of like her other types of writings. Again, I had only read some parts of Silent Spring. I had never really read anything else by her, which I realize now is such a shame. Um, and especially, so that second one that I was talking, that, that, that I read, uh, when it's talking about the different parts of the ocean, like the different type, like different areas of the water, um, it's such a simple way to, to explain the different um, the different areas of the ocean uh, because uh, I, I don't have the scientific names off the top of my head and frankly I don't feel like using them because I think Carson explains it way better than I could um, but in each zone of the ocean you have different you have different animals or Yes, different sea creatures that live there. Um, it's it's even different, like in how like how much sunlight gets through. It's different in how much uh, how packed each area is. Like the closer you are to the shoreline, the more life there is technically. Um, 
because there's life throughout the entire ocean, but like, especially I think visibly there's more life um, closer to the shoreline because you have uh, everything what's in like the tide pools and stuff like that. And you have the crabs and, and everything that are like very close to the shoreline and the smaller fish. And um, I mean, occasionally you get bigger fish like sharks and things like that. But I, she just does a very good job of, of encapsulating like, this idea that the ocean is split into parts and like not everything in the ocean is the same. Um, because the farther out you go and then you get, the deeper you go, the different kind of life you're going to find there. Um, and I also really loved when I was talking about that third one. Uh, she's talking about... Um, Again, very, 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 very clearly, but um, that lyrical type of prose that she have, where uh, she's explaining that everything in the ocean is reliant upon these um, the microscopic entities that are using like photosynthesis to generate energy and food for themselves, and then they feed the smaller animals, and then they feed the bigger, and then and so on and so forth uh, up the chain so that the entire ocean can survive um but she she spells it out in just very in like plain terms but in such a beautiful way that it's very easy to read i think it's very easy to understand even from someone who didn't have a background like mine um <clears throat> and i just like her writing here it's just brilliant in my opinion and it's clearly meant to be educational <clears throat> especially because it was intended to be a fish and wildlife brochure um but then the guy, the man she was working for was like, this is not, like, we are not, like, worthy of this. Like, this is so much more poetic than, than what we should be published. And you should try to publish this elsewhere. And she did. And it's what led to her getting that first book of hers published. It, it led to her, like, pursuing that as a career outside of working for the, the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, I just I think Carson really brings the ocean to life through her words, and and more than that, I think she brings such a unique perspective uh, to how she approaches the wildlife here. It's it's clearly an outsider's point of view, but there's nothing detached about her tone. And I talked extensively last week about um, how I've seen Native American writers very clearly, instant like having themselves within the environment they're talking about. It's not a separate entity. It's not something they're looking down upon they're they're firmly within the environment and i think as much as carson could do that that's what she was trying to do because again it's an outsider's perspective it's an outsider's um pov here when you're reading anything from this art intercy article and that's i mean i assume because it was it's nonfiction, it was supposed to be educational but even then it's just you feel immersed in in what she's writing about um like I said, there's nothing detached about what she's writing. It's it's very and you and again, you can feel the respect, the love she has for it here. And like that was I mean, that's the point of this podcast, right? Is for me to talk about how I think the environment gets portrayed in different forms of media and in particular here different forms of writing from different authors of different backgrounds. And it's interesting to me because um Rachel Carson is obviously writing decades after um, Sarah Warner Jewett um, and around the same time or decades after um, the authors I was talking about last week, so Miku Paul and Molly Spotted Elk, um, 
but it's interesting to see that I think she falls more in line with uh, with Miku Paul and Molly Spotted Elk than she does Sarah Ornajewitt. Because I mean, Sarah Ornajewitt was not an environmentalist writer. That's like that's not what she was writing about. Um, she happened to use it in something she was writing, which is why I, I wanted to talk about her. And I thought she used it well, but again, it was for a purpose. Whereas again, I talked about how um, Miku Paul and uh, Molly Spotted Elk like the purpose for their writing was to express something about themselves, about their heritage, about their traditions, about their culture, and and doing that for them, like it's a for, it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to include the environment because that is so embedded in their culture. Um, and for someone like Rachel Carson, I think for her it's kind of the same way because uh, if you read into her background, um, which you can find in that article I talked about, or if you look up a biography of her or anything. Uh, she actually, she grew up in, in um, I, I want to say Pittsburgh. I want to say she's from Pittsburgh. Um, I might be thinking of a different author, but she's from Pennsylvania. I know that. Uh, and she did not live by the sea initially. I think she's from a rural area. Actually, no, so not Pittsburgh, but I think she's from a rural area. Um, <clears throat> and it wasn't until later in her, her life that she actually got to go. So the, like they actually got to visit the ocean. Like she spent a decent portion of her life having never seen the ocean ever. Um, but I think I think partly when she was in college, um, she had like she had like a calling. She felt like she like it was some the calling of the ocean to her, like to go and to see it and to explore it. Uh, and she ends up, and she goes to school to be a writer because she thinks. And there's a quote. I believe from the article uh, where she says that like she always knew she'd be a writer. She always believed that about herself um, without really knowing why, but just knowing this is what I'm going to end up doing. And she goes to college and she ends up um, changing her major uh, from what the article says based on her experiences with um, one of the, one of the professors there uh, because she was so fascinated with what this woman had to say and what this woman was telling her about. And, it's why she goes on to become a marine biologist because she becomes so fascinated by the ocean and, and she didn't swim. She wasn't, she wasn't someone who liked swimming. And I think for most of her life, she didn't know how again, because she didn't really live near the ocean or any body of water really, I think um, that would have necessitated knowing how to swim. Um, but she loved the shore life and, and you get that, um, not so much in the article I was in the undersea article I was talking about, but you can find it, I think, in her other writing where like that was that was her that was her true like her true love was the the area of the shore. Because uh if you see her write about it, it just it comes across very clearly how much she 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 loved and respected what she was seeing and how and her curiosity for all the, the life that made its home there. Um all this to say, really, I just, her writing is, the purpose for her talking about the environment is educational. It is in every single book she writes, I think. Um, but I think for her, it's also, because this is, like, this is the world she lives in. And she may not live in the water obviously 
but um, it's still an integral part of her life, not just because she is a marine, she was a marine biologist, I'm sorry, um, but because it, it seemed to, like, it seemed to become such a, a touchstone for her, I think, um, which makes it all the more sad that she ended up not being able to see the ocean again before she died. Um, that's neither here nor there, really, but I just, it always just adds to that tragedy for me that that's something that she, she didn't get to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I've gotten a little off track here. Uh, I really was doing this specifically to talk about um, the portrayal of the environment here. Uh, I mean, I think you can get it, like, from the, from the parts of the article I've shared and my inelegant rambling um that carson uh it, like the, the ocean for her it's not it's not a tool i think and i might not be giving sarah one of enough credit with this one but i again I, I talked about it before that i don't think or i do think that it was it was a it was a bit of a tool like the the forest the, the animal she was talking about it was a tool for her to explore sylvia's um adolescence and her feet her femininity and her innocence and such uh whereas like the ocean being used in these undersea articles and, and the many books she wrote about it it's it's a tool sort of or actually more to the point the tool itself is the book and this is just her being able to deliver her information and like what she wants other people to to love and be fascinated by um and then the, it just happens to be that it's a book she's writing to make it this way to to get that information out in the world um and i just think it, at, the, at the end of the it's undeniable like how much she respected the environment and how much she wanted to to see it continue to flourish and continue to be um as you know as beautiful and as untouched i think i think a lot of scientists especially nowadays a lot of scientists um place value in like not disrupting the environment you're studying as like as little as possible disrupting it and i imagine carson would have been the same way with it um i can't i can't imagine she she was any kind of person to like take from take from excess like the things from the environment just to for the sake of science um I think her love for it was probably too great for that. Um, but, okay, so I was gonna talk about Annie Dillard. I do have, I mean, my other ones ran for like a half an hour-ish, so I have a couple of minutes if I really wanna talk about it. And uh, I have, I just have, I guess one thing to say about it because it's not super relevant to what I was talking about with Rachel Carson. Um, and again, I don't think Danny, Annie Dillard is this type of writer. It just happened to be the subject of this poem she was writing. Whereas, uh, so there's a natural history of getting through the year is what the poem is called. It's from like 1975, I think. Uh, and so then it's like the subtitle is from the diaries of a 19th century naturalist in Staunton, Virginia. Um, and the poem literally is just like, I'm assuming it really was a person's diary. Or, or journal, and if it wasn't, then she definitely gives, um, 
she definitely writes it as if it was. It's just formatted into a poem. Um, and it's literally uh, this person describing like what's going on currently in the environment. So like the mountains are on fire and everything is dry, insects gone. Um, I spent most of the day mounting butterflies from India. This finishes all the flies for this year until more are caught. Poison plants at night, very warm. The brightest, warmest January, I remember. Uh, and I brought this up because I was thinking about, I was trying to find writers like Carson. So the people who were able to sort of marry like the scientific with, with the creative. And I, I don't know really if anybody has managed it quite as well as Carson. I don't have a broad scope for this. Um, so I could very well be wrong. And there are people exactly like Carson out there somewhere. Uh, I'd actually hope to find them. But uh, the point I wanted to make with Dillard's poem, at least, is that it, it does sort of bridge the the creative with the scientific. Um, it's not, I'm not sure the purpose of the poem here. Like, I think, like I said, I think the, the usage of a naturalist journal here was less about her making any sort of point with the environment and more just, this is the subject she chose to write about or chose to recreate as a poem. Um, the final line, which I think was part of the reason I even, I even caught this, or it even caught my attention, was the take up mental hygiene because it is much needed now. Um, that, that one stood out to me because I kept coming back to Carson dealing with so much while she was writing Silent Spring and her other works and everything and dealing with the family she had and her correspondence with, um, Freeman, where, like, she just she had so much emotionally going on at any given moment um it's it's insane to imagine that she was capable of doing what she did uh and not just writing silence Spring. i mean writing any of these things like getting any of this out here uh doing the work she was doing for the wild fish and wildlife services um but yeah this this poem by annie dillard was not not nearly the same thing. I just it was the closest I could find, and I did enjoy the poem. I thought it was an interesting. I thought it was an interesting look um, at this type of uh, bridge from academic to to the creative outlet. Um, but again, it's not as relevant as I would have liked it to be. So I'm not going to spend any more time talking about it. Uh, I, I actually think I should just end this with, uh, that, that comparison I had with Annie, Annie, uh, Sarah wanted to do it, uh, Miku Paul, Molly Spotted Elk, and Rachel Carson, who have all had very varying ways of describing the environment. And I think had, had very different purposes for why they were having the environment involved in their writing at all. And with Sarah wanted to do it sort of on the end of the spectrum of, it happened to suit the plot she was writing and the area she lived in or visited or knew about and such was something she, like it was something she understood so she could write about it and write about it well. And then it was, but it was purely sort of for plot advancement. And at the end of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum, I should say, is, is Molly Spotted Elk and Mika Paul and other native writers who, this is just how they write. This is just part of their writing because it's part of their 
of their lives, their their cultures. And um, I think Rachel Carson definitely leans more towards their end than she does Sarah Wajua, but I think she's closer to the middle um, for for the purposes of this, of me making an assessment here. Uh, well, I've enjoyed talking about the three, the four of them, I'm sorry. Um, but again, I think I'm very happy to be finished. Uh, and with that, I will say goodbye for the final time for this podcast and just end it with the hope that someone got some kind of enjoyment out of this. Thank you for listening.